Hi, everybody. This is George Heffler, and you're listening to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is Dan Zeplowitz. How you doing, Dan? I'm good, George. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, Dan, we're, we're going to jump right into this. You're pretty new to horror, right? I would say Hereditary was, at most, the 10th horror movie I've ever seen. Yeah, we'll, we'll just – we won't beat around the bush at all. We're talking about Hereditary today. Ari Aster's movie from 2018, and this is the thing that got you in. This is what brought you into the family, as we say. It did. It did. By breaking me down to my, like, core level. <laughs> <laughs> so so what was it that got you to see this movie? If, if horror is not really something that you're into, what was it about this one in particular that drew you to it? You know, I kind of just – saw it on Netflix one day and I I've, I always like the concept of horror movies like I, I like to think I can watch it but most of the time it only got up to the shitty sci-fi movies right so I did some research just like Rotten Tomatoes like oh this is a good movie it seems like you know not just jump scares that's the first thing I look ended up seeing it and it was amazing it like I said destroyed me and it was the scariest movie I've ever seen the, the rewatch of it I was really really blown away like how much of an actual good movie it was which i yeah. didn't think horror movies could do really i really just didn't have an understanding that they could be their own you know standalone actual good movie yeah that's sort of a trend that people have been appreciating more and more recently between ari aster robert eggers and jordan peele there's really been sort of a renaissance of horror movies that are not just they're not just about stacking up the body count they're Mm -hmm. they're genuine movies there's well-regarded actors in them they're taking care to make sure that the story makes sense (laughs) everything so it's it's really nice to see that i totally agree uh you said you're not really a jump scares guy i am in the similar boat as you (laughs) so is there a genre of horror that you find yourself really leaning towards like slashers because it's not really that sort of thing i imagine paranormal stuff is pretty much off the table for the paranormal most part is is gone that's just not yeah. a question yeah no <laughs> slashers for sure and i'll tell you what i love the campy horror movies like oh, me too the leprechaun series <laughs> amazing <laughs> amazing it's, it's a joy a joy to watch it really um, is so anything that's like horror movie light i, w- I would mm-hmm. say is, is my style so sure. yeah camper slasher things like that so let's uh, let's just jump right into the movie to give a little synopsis for people who aren't aware of what it is. But we're, we are going to go into spoilers and talk more. But the basic idea is that there's a family who is dealing with a recent loss and the misfortune just keeps stacking up for them, basically. Slightly, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> But it's it's really cool because it starts off our our main actor is Tony Collette playing the character of Annie. And she does such an amazing job in this. And I know that we talked a little bit already about how these recent horror movies are actually well acted, mm-hmm. but there was actually sort of a push for her to get nominated for an Oscar for best. I, uh, best I literally- lead have a tab on my computer with a list of awards and nominations for Tony Collette for that movie because I was yeah. like there's no way she wasn't at least nominated right it was unreal yeah it's it truly a miscarriage of justice she was she's truly incredible but she's not the only great actor in it Gabriel Byrne he plays Steve the dad and 
Gabriel Byrne is a very well-respected actor. He is probably most famously known for The Usual Suspects and for Miller's Crossing, which is one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. And Alex Wolfe plays the son named Peter. And Millie Shapiro plays the daughter, Charlie. Now, she does a really awesome job of being incredibly creepy. Yeah. But one thing that I, I really want to talk about in a way, in a way that it sort of reminded me of Psycho, the trailer for Hereditary. I don't know if you got a chance to see it because did, yeah. It, yeah, they did a really awesome job of kind of fooling you into thinking that she was going to be in the movie a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And spoilers, she dies relatively early into the movie, and it really part of what makes this movie so good is that it it really sets you on edge and says, okay, nobody is safe here. Mm-hmm. This is a main character. Uh, She was in the trailer a ton. You cannot pin down what Ari Aster is going to do with this. And not only was he the director, he was also the writer. So it really is entirely in his hands. So all the acting is great. And basically, we open up and Toni Collette, her character Annie Graham, is a miniature artist, which is a very, very specific job. Yeah. Um, I haven't really seen before but it plays into the movie in a really interesting way and she is the loss that i mentioned at the very beginning is that her mother has just died and they're at this funeral and she's giving a eulogy and i think that this is right off the bat you can see how great this performance is because there's just so little passion in her eulogy you can't really it doesn't feel like it's a eulogy for someone's mother it feels like it's uh, like a cousin that you barely knew and your mom was like all right you have to go up and say something nice about your cousin mm-hmm. <laughs> um but she gives this uh, dispassionate eulogy kind of explaining the relationship that they had which was fraught is probably the nicest <laughs> way to say it and she she seems to be bottling up her emotions at the same time, telling her family that it's like it's fine to feel bad about this. It's fine to cry. Would it make you feel better? Um, but she's hiding all this inside and lying about going to a support group for the bereaved. Mm-hmm. And she reveals in this uh, support group a little bit more about her past. And we kind of see why she has this relationship with her mother, because uh, her father had a a psychotic depression and he starved himself to death Mm. and her brother had schizophrenia and accused their mom of trying to put people inside of him and he hanged himself to get away with it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely tough upbringing, uh, two suicides in their immediate family. It's, it's easy to understand why she would have this sort of chilly attitude towards her mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, there's already some weird stuff going on. They find out that the grave of the mother has been desecrated, which is immediately spooky to hear that word. Oh, <laughs> it's desecrated. Uh, I literally, uh, in my notes, I literally wrote, ooh, spooky. <laughs> and it's really nice that they, they've set up this atmosphere so well. You can really get an idea of the way that this character is going to be reacting to things just from this little section of the beginning. And it's, it's a really interesting way. What do you, what do you think about this sort of introduction to this character? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's, it's just 
unbelievable how the movie starts as this family tragedy where you, I mean, especially after the second death in the family where she is on the ground, like screaming that she doesn't, that she just wants to die. Yeah. I mean, it hurts too much. Yeah. You're like, you're sitting there like bereaved for this woman. You, you forget it's a horror movie and mm-hmm. it just, it, her performance and everything in the beginning just kind of sets you up and it kind of puts you a little bit at ease. Cause you're like, Oh, I'm just going to sympathize with this character meanwhile the whole movie is just going down this unbelievably crazy path that you have no idea yeah exactly the beginning really it's it feels like it's going in a totally different direction Mm -hmm. meanwhile there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily character related that is also setting you on edge there's some really intense droning in the score Mm -hmm. which totally uh you hear it in the background and you're just like oh man i know something bad is coming yeah and as far as atmospheric stuff, it, the literally the first shot is just an obituary over a black screen. It's mm-hmm. the mom's obituary, and it's, again, very dispassionate, kind of setting up uh, a little bit of the characterization without even seeing the character of Annie. And then it zooms into a room on the miniature house. That's the first shot. Yeah. And that sort of says a lot where we know that we're watching a movie – but by doing that zoom in on the room that then becomes the actual room in the house, mm-hmm. it really gives you the impression of like, oh, we are actually watching these people. There is uh, an aura of kind of voyeurism to the whole thing. Yep. That's, I actually have in my notes, I want to talk about kind of the whole miniature theme because first off, super weird job. I thought it was more of a hobby, but apparently it's an actual <laughs> job. Yeah. So. Congrats on, on that, Annie. Hey, if you work, uh, yeah. if you do the thing you love, you never work a day in your life. That's the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, just the theme of, of the miniatures, and I think you pretty much just hit the nail on the head. You know, I think it's your step back. You're just watching this family. True. And then I also thought as well, you know, kind of the miniatures make it so that the family themselves, you know, we'll, get, we'll cover more at the end of the movie, but their actions are so small and irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. They're just, yeah. you know, miniaturize in the room where they don't even have any effect because of the forces around them it's interesting too because like you said it's that's not the only thing that sort of plays into that feeling of powerlessness with their uh their actions when peter is in class the first time that we see him in the school mm-hmm. he's kind of just zoning out a little bit but the teacher is talking about a sophocles play where um, they're talking about whether Heracles has any free will, and does that make it more or less tragic? And uh, at first, you're like, oh, I, I get it. I'd zone out, too. It's just, you know, they picked something dry for the teacher to talk about. But it is actually representative of the family, where it's it's – do they have any free will in this situation? There's so much that happens to them that's been kind of put upon them that could they have done anything to change it? Is it more or less tragic because there was nothing they could or, yes, there was something they could have done? And so it's really interesting the way that that, that plus the voyeurism really sort of sets up this creepy, creepy tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's some additional really awesome shots that in the di- like not just the zoom into the miniature stuff. There's a fun shot reverse shot when Peter is on the phone at night 
and then it, it reverse shots to someone looking at him from outside, but mm. they're off screen, so you don't know who it is. All you see is the breath of the cold air, and you're like, it's so creepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god, <laughs> that, that whole movie, like, I, anything could have happened in the movie. The, the tension is so strong that any like a pin could have dropped, and I'm, you're gonna freak out. Yeah. It's, it's, unbelievable how well how well directed in the pace of the movie it's it's unreal but for two hours you're just terrified and nothing's happening the first like hour and a half there's really like not a lot of stuff that is popping off but but you're still on edge the whole time it's it's frankly it can feel exhausting (laughs) Um, but the family is dealing with the loss of their mother and Peter, the son, when he, when he's in when he's in the his room talking on the phone in with that shot reverse shot that I just talked about, he is getting invited to a party, and he tells his mom that he's going. And weirdly, the mom is like, "You have to take your sister with you," very which very bizarre. Uh, it's a high school party. I cannot. The kid is 13 years old. I cannot imagine being forced to take uh, a younger sibling to a high school party like that, especially when the mom. Peter denies that they're going to be drinking, right. but they're going to be. He's also a stoner, so he's he's going to be high, he's going to be drunk, and the mom is going to make is making him take this this kid with him. Uh, obviously, this is the last thing that he wants. So while he's at the party, he sort of abandons her to smoke weed with his crush. Classic. Now, here is something that is immediately kind of bizarre. But you're just like, oh, it's just because of kids today. Right. The the kids are, first of all, making a cake at this party. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's weird thing number one. It's not it's not the most normal, but we can move past. <laughs> sure. Weird thing number two, a group of them are watching guillotine videos. <laughs> are so, they? I must have missed yeah. them. Yeah, that, they're watching them on the laptop when uh, she pokes her head in and she's like, hey, guys, Peter has weed. Wow. And so they're watching people get decapitated, they're baking a cake, they're chopping up a ton of nuts, like a crazy amount of nuts to put into this cake. Mm-hmm. And we know, having seen them talk about not having an EpiPen and stuff, that Charlie, the sister who's been forced to this party, which, worth noting, she also did not want to go. Right. Um, the mom truly forced her to go. She's allergic to nuts. And we see them chopping up the nuts for this cake. And Peter, in an effort to get the sister away, tells her to go eat a piece of the cake and that they'll they'll give her one. Now, she starts to go into anaphylactic shock because of this. And it's again, it's a very natural thing, but it still makes you feel really on edge. You're watching her start to wheeze. And Peter says that he's going to drive her to the hospital. And she's in the back seat, just like clawing at her throat and and wheezing and, and gasping for air. And it's really awful. And just that scene by itself would be enough. Yeah. But as you alluded to, she sticks her head out of the window trying to get some better air. And Peter swerves to avoid some roadkill and she gets decapitated. Mm. Her head hits a telephone pole and just comes there's a sickening snap and her head oh, just gets removed from her body truly awful it destroyed me that that scene i think was 
literal mind-numbing to me. I just sat there with, like, yeah. no thought or emotion. It's like, oh, my God, how is this possible? Yeah, it's it was really crazy, and I, so, something similar happened in, in – when I, so I saw it in theaters opening weekend, Ooh. and – everyone in the in the theater was just totally silent there um there was there wasn't even any screams or anything people were just in shock right not only because it's a really grotesque thing but like i said this is a character that from the trailer we thought was going to be in the whole thing so seeing her get her head removed (laughs) into the movie (laughs) is is surprising on more than one level yes um Peter is obviously shook by this. Yes, he if you look up uh, in the dictionary the definition of shook, it's just a picture of Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that's uh, really awesome that while he's sitting there, we kind of get a look at the pole that did the deed, as it were. And this is not something that I noticed on my first watch through, but the symbol that is on the mother's necklace mm-hmm. and that we see throughout the entire movie is actually carved into the pole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so it's th- this sort of little detail where you're like, oh, well, okay, so to jump ahead a little bit, that's the symbol of a cult that is uh, is it has some impact in this movie. Mm-hmm. And as you think back on the movie, this is very much a movie where you have to kind of sit with it and chew on it a little bit. Yeah. And you think, is that there just because did they somehow make this happen? Did they put the the animal in the road? Are they the ones who made it so that there were nuts in the cake? Like, do they have some kind of influence on the children? Are the children part of the cult? Mm. Like, it really makes you sort of question this stuff just from one little thi- one little detail yeah. that's carved into the into the tree pole or excuse me, the telephone pole. Right. So. Peter drives home with the corpse in the back and he, but no head, but no, no head. head. That's right. That's right. No head. And he walks into his room totally in shock. Will you hear Annie say to her husband, Oh good. They're home. <laughs> and it, it, you're, you, you know that it's awful, but like they, they have no idea. And, and Peter doesn't say anything to them. He, he just, goes to bed he's in shock now we're not sure if he actually goes to sleep because it cuts to the next morning and his eyes are still open and he listens to his mom just chatting she says oh i gotta run to the store for something um and you it's totally off screen you hear her go to the car and just see the headless corpse of her daughter in the back seat and like you said uh, the next scene is her just wailing. There's no other way to, to describe what she's doing than wailing. Um, yeah. She's going nuts on the, on the floor of her room saying, yeah, I, I, I want to die. It's too painful. I can't believe that this happened. It's you. It really makes you empathize with her in a way that, like I said, it feels very normal. This could have just been a normal accident. It doesn't necessarily feel like there's anything paranormal or supernatural going on. Right, exactly. You're just basically watching a family drama, I feel like. Like a terrible, horrible tragedy family drama film at this totally. point. Totally. And and again, up until this point, there's still been a lot of this sort of voyeurism stuff mm-hmm. where 
at one point, Charlie is in her room and she's sort of making a toy with uh, the head of a pigeon that she cut off, mm. which is a, a very bizarre scene. It's it's very disturbing when she cuts yeah. it off. And she sort of has a, also a dispassionate attitude, but not just towards her mother to, or not towards her grandmother, towards life in general, sort of like she is just kind of um, reserved and doesn't offer a lot. But she she doesn't seem like aggressive or anything. She's just kind of observing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she walks outside. This bird crashed into the window of their classroom. She cuts off the head and she starts to make a toy with it. And as she's making the toy, there the camera is over her shoulder and then pulls back and up in a way that feels like somebody looking over her shoulder. Mm-hmm. And... There's some some lights playing around that we sort of see uh, come back into the movie in a later instance. And, uh, yeah, it just feels like there's uh, we're watching the lives of these people, not just as a film audience, but like in the story as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I got to say that Peter, who is doing he's a, he's an amazing actor as well. The, the kid. Incredible. Playing Peter. Yeah. Uh, his name is Alex Wolf. And. Tony Collette did an amazing job, but I, I don't want to overshadow Alex Wolf because he does such an amazing job of portraying sort of the nightmare situation that he's in. Yeah. I can't imagine. Dan, can you imagine a more stressful situation than being high and drunk and your sister is going into anaphylactic shock? <laughs> See, that, that's the thing. Like, you're, you're stressing out with the character. Like, oh, my God, this is horrible. What are you going to do? And then you get destroyed by that scene. And, yeah, no, it's it's – insane and just yeah. he's he captures i don't know how you do it i guess you know be a good actor but yeah. just being just mentally you know done being mm-hmm. so burnt out and just hard from every like horror that's around him and it's unbelievable to actually to see and witness and you're like i can't believe a 20 year old kid is be able to you know show this kind of emotion that you're so bought into this story it's already a horror movie at this point. Like you said, it feels like a family drama, but it's definitely a horror movie at this point, even without any any supernatural stuff happening yet. Right. It's definitely horrific. Now, Annie, like we said, she's going nuts because of this, um, and totally understandably, and she goes back to the bereavement group that she had talked about her mother at. And she goes to the parking lot, and she decides she doesn't want to go in. She she's she's starting to leave, and this character Joan or Joni runs over and sort of says like, "Hey, I noticed that you weren't going to go in. Like, is is something okay?" And she, one thing I noticed that was really interesting is she says that her daughter was killed in the parking lot. She doesn't mm-hmm. say my daughter died. She says my daughter was killed, hmm. and I think that this really sort of shows the resentment that she is already holding toward Peter. That resentment is so buried within her already. Mm-hmm. She totally holds him responsible. And it, it, it's obviously hard to, to deal with it, but in a lot of her conversations, she seems to be looking for someone to blame for everything. Um at one point, she's talking about how she was sleepwalking and she covered both of her children in paint thinner and was about to light them on fire. 
Now, granted, she can't control what she's doing in her sleep, mm-hmm. but she she says that they used to say that she's crazy and her husband, uh, they were always fighting. And so she was stressed because her husband was always arguing with her and that her son always held it against her no matter what. And it's like, uh, I imagine that it would be hard to forgive someone who tried to light you on fire. It's definitely it's going to be tough to come back from that one. Right. I feel like you pull that card out in pretty much any argument. Like, yeah, you tried to burn me alive, so no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's your that's your trump card forever. Right. <laughs> and she, yeah, so she's she's looking for pretty much anyone to blame for everything. Mm-hmm. She pushes everything away and everyone away. And she says that uh, the father and the the son um, sort of bonded over this, and 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 that she didn't really feel like she was part of the family as much and that they had kind of teamed up against her meanwhile the dad throughout this entire thing is just trying to keep everything together he's just trying to hold everything together peter comes home from school one day and this is right after charlie has died and he says did you sign up for that sat prep course (laughs) (laughs) and it's just the most normal bullshit thing that a dad would totally say and and you you see what he's trying to do, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like, nobody else is having it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Annie befriends Joan, who – she gave her her number in the parking lot. She never actually went into the to the room. Mm-hmm. And her – so they become good friends, but Joni sort of starts to lead her down a bizarre path where she says that she went to a medium – and she found out that she could have a seance and communicate with her grandson who died. Mm-hmm. And she says that you can do this too. You can talk to Charlie. She doesn't have to be gone. Like she can she can be there and you can have her back. And this sort of worms its way into Annie. And I got to say that the seance scene that they have Ooh. very spooky. Oh man, the the first when, when the cup moved the first yeah. time Oh, oh man, yeah. <laughs> and when Annie is leaving, and Joan, or she says she's not gone, you know. Mm-hmm. And that shot of her in the mirror and Annie off to the side, unreal. And it's it's yeah. so nice to just to you know sidetrack quick quick thirty seconds here. Mm-hmm. It, this was like the first time I've ever watched a horror movie twice because right. you know normally I watch it and be like, all right, that was terrifying, never again. <laughs> But to, like, watch it this time, and first off, not be as scared because I know what's coming. <laughs> and to, like, actually watch it critically, you know, you really do start to pick up on, on some details that I never would have before. So, you know, appreciate giving me the uh, incentive to watch a, a good horror movie twice there. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and one thing that I want to talk about with this seance scene, in addition to it being very scary, is that it's all practical effects. Really? The, yeah, the effects team figured out how to get the candle to relight. I was reading about how they put a magnet in the tiny little piece of chalk and they literally just moved a magnet around under the bottom to get it to write. I love you, grandma. They moved the cup. I, I, I it with the practical effect. That's obviously the easiest one, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's all very impressive and it looks great. I like uh, to think it's just like a dude in like a green man suit, just like moving the cup and they just edited him out or something. Yeah. Exactly. They were like, all right, this is the one we're going to save money on. (laughs) (laughs) So 
Annie, she's freaked out, obviously, by this. And she goes home, but it's sort of wormed its way into her. And her and her family are really sort of on the outs at this point. There's a dinner scene that happens that is so, so intense. A little stressful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's so realistic to a family fight that I was truly on the edge of my seat. And there's nothing really happening besides a conversation. Nobody's talking during this dinner scene at first. And the son asks if she's all right. He says, it seems like there's something that you want to say. She says, why would she want to say something just to watch him sneer at her? And he's baffled by this. He's like, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's, it becomes clear that she's looking for a fight when she says, oh, you don't have to, you know, it's, it's obvious that she, she's trying to pick this fight because she's, she's looking to kind of put the blame on someone else and look for a reason to be angry. Mm-hmm. But Peter kind of pushes back a little bit and he says, you are the one who made her go. Like you, you're, this is at the end of the day, this is because of you that it's happened. I didn't want to bring her. She didn't want to go. And you forced her to go. Why? Like, and, and so she freaks out. She storms out of the room when the father tries to sort of, again, just keep things normal, bring everyone back down. And it's, it's really awesome. And, this scene with these three incredible actors in it is just spectacular to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And things only keep escalating. She continues to fall back into sleepwalking. She has some really intense dreams about it. She talks to Peter in her dream about how she never wanted to be his mother. That Uh, scene, I I audibly, like, I, I couldn't believe that. That was yeah. an unbelievable line in a movie. Yeah. Took the breath out of my body. It's like, I, that <laughs> is the meanest thing you could possibly say to someone. Yeah, and she, like, tries to walk it back like, yeah. right away. She's like, oh, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Like, you, there's no walking that back. You yeah, but then she it. makes it worse. <laughs> and she's the whole, you tried to kill me. It's like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. yeah but but um, you're right. It's just, like, it, that could have been a regular conversation, you know, minus the lighter fluid or paint thinner after. But besides yeah. that. Yeah, and so all of a sudden she's covered in paint thinner, and so is uh, so is Peter, and you realize something's going on, and then she has a, a match in her hand out of nowhere, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And then she wakes up, and you realize that it was just a dream. Mm-hmm. But you're you're really starting to think that that there's not going to be anything supernatural that happens in this movie. That it's just the story of this woman's sort of mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. A very understandable mental breakdown, right. but a mental breakdown nonetheless. <laughs> she decides that she needs to try this seance herself. And so while everyone is sleeping, she tries the seance, and it apparently works. We don't get to see it, but she rushes upstairs, and she wakes up the husband, and she wakes up her son, and she says, you guys need to come downstairs. We need to do this uh, this thing to to bring Charlie back. And... We see it sort of work. It doesn't work in the same way that Joan's seance works, but Charlie possesses Annie and she doesn't necessarily, she doesn't seem to realize that that's what's happening because she says, where's mom? 
and all of a sudden some glass breaks and she pushes uh, the husband and the son away a little bit and it's only sort of broken when the husband Stephen throws the throws the glass of water on her mm-hmm. sort of shocks her out of it and this this possession is again you're just like is this real or is she just nuts at this point it's right uh nuts is perhaps a pejorative word and i i shouldn't necessarily call it that but she has a history of mental illness right and and it's the court it's the sort of thing that can be passed down through genetics and both of her parents had a mental disorder and her brother did Mm -hmm. it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that she's just having a breakdown and it really feels like that might be the case but as things continue she realizes that uh, there's a link between Joan and her mother. Uh, this was started when she saw, when she went over to talk to her, that her doormat looked like something that her mother used to embroider. Mm-hmm. And she goes upstairs or into the attic and her mother's belongings, and she sees a photo album that shows both of them together, the mom and Joan. And... She also finds information about a demon named Paimon, the king of hell, who wants to come back to Earth and inhabit a male host. And so she, with this information, believes that this is what's happening to her family, that Joan is part of this cult, that her mother was also part of it and trying to bring a a king of hell into her son's body or her daughter's body in the first place into Charlie. Uh, And then when Charlie died, Joan is trying to put it into Peter and she is going wild. And she tells her husband, Stephen, that she found her mom's decapitated body and strange symbols on the wall in the attic, which is the case (laughs) that we see the body. And that is the first sort of indication that she's not crazy, that this is a real thing. And so the first time you were watching it, Dan, did you think that she was crazy or did you think that something for real was going on? And did this scene sort of shock you or was it just kind of more of the same? So I was kind of teetering the line and I had no idea. And I mean, like you said, this is the first point of the movie where there's like physical evidence of some supernatural thing. And this has to be at least an hour in, right? If, if not, oh, yeah, at least. So, yeah, I, I really had no idea. And they, they set it up so well that and I didn't really I didn't watch the trailer until I went to rewatch it uh, yesterday. Yeah. But so I really had no idea what this movie was was about whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I really thought she was just losing her mind. I was like, wait, that's a headless body. Something's <laughs> up. That's not it. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. And so as she's making this discovery, Peter is in school and sort of seems to get possessed as well. Mm. Uh, he looks to the side and there's Ooh. a reflection of him that is like kind of smirking at him and has just like a really creepy face on that I mean, does not match. Like that, I don't know what it is. Just destroy me. They are so <laughs> scary to me. <laughs> yeah. It's because it, it feels like the kind of thing you would have control over because it's your reflection. Oh, it should just reflect you. This is the state of the natural world. And then, right. boom, it, it's immediately taken away from you in something that's so simple. Man, whew. Yeah, that got me. That scene yeah. got me. So so he, he sees the scary reflection. Uh, all of a sudden, his hand shoots up, 
and he looks sort of like he's having a stroke and people are freaking out and he just slams his head against the desk and he breaks his nose, gets sent home. So his dad drives him home and this is when the mom tells him about the body in the attic and the symbols. The father, he goes up to look, but he doesn't believe her at first. He, he doesn't believe that there's going to be anything up there, but he goes up and sees it and he thinks that Annie is the one who's doing it. Mm-hmm. He, he says that, oh, I didn't tell you that the grave had been desecrated because um, I didn't want to worry you. But it was you, wasn't it, Annie? And the whole time she's trying to convince him that this is – it's all this cult and that he needs to destroy the book uh, that was – the connection point between Charlie for the seance, because if you don't, then um, they're all going to die. Basically mm-hmm. that they need to stop this haunting that's happening. And the, it looks like Steve is going to go along with it. And then he says, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Like I'm not going to go along with this. And Annie grabs the notebook out of his hands, throws it into the fire. And uh, Steve immediately <laughs> gets lit aflame. He just erupts in fire. And it's very distressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is distressing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because we we had seen Annie put like a couple of pages into the fire. Right. And her arm gets a little bit of fire on it, but she manages to pat it out. And you're like, oh, is this because she like is the one who was putting the stuff in? Uh, How does this exactly work? And so when Steve says that he's not going to do it and then she's the one who throws it in for him to be the one that gets lit on fire is truly it feels like out of left field. That's why did you see it coming? I had I was shocked. I had no idea. No. Now, he he goes he he dies. Obviously, he's been lit on fire and Peter is up in his room sleeping is still at this point. Strap in. This is this is it. <laughs> this is the moment when things yeah. start to pop off. Yeah. <laughs> so he wakes up, stumbles downstairs, finds his father's body. Now, there's two things to look at behind him. On his <laughs> left, or excuse me, on our left, his right, is Annie floating in the top left of the room. Mm-hmm. Just just floating there, just watching him. She was and, in, the, uh, in the bedroom, too. Yes, yes. Oh, At one point, she was, uh, like, floating up in the bedroom and sort of crawls. float crawl is yeah. terrifying. That's the scariest really moment is. for me. <laughs> yeah, she, she crawls through the air um, oh. in a very disturbing scene, um, and she floats again here. And to his, to his left, our right, is just a leering naked man. And we had seen him before. He smiled at Charlie during her grandmother's funeral. And here he is again, naked as the day he was born and just going going nuts. He's just leering at, at Peter in a really disturbing way. Now, Peter, he has no real options here but to flee. Totally understandably. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, I'm, I'm done with this. And just runs out of the room. <laughs> and he, the only way that he can go is sort of deeper into the house and further up. And he climbs up into the attic and closes it behind him. 
and the mob and meanwhile annie is chasing him she um sort of comes down from the roof and and is chasing after him and she's right behind him as he gets up into the attic and as as he's up there crying and saying mommy please stop it sounds like she's knocking on it but then it pans down and instead of knocking she is in fact slamming her head against the attic door repeatedly floating against the roof unbelievable that was (laughs) that's probably the scene that uh fucked me up the most to be honest I, I think I was just like the first time I saw it, I was so literally broken from being terrified of just her being in the corner of the bedroom that just everything else just happened. I was like, oh, my God, please stop. Yeah, it's it's really awful. It is and crazy. Finally, it's it, the knocking seems to stop oh, and so he gets a chance to look around the room that he's in and he sees that the body that was there is now not there. But. He turns around a little more, and there is his mom uh, sl- sawing her head off her own body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are some more naked coven members. There are just a bunch of naked people in the attic as well. Now, when I say that she's sawing off her own body, I don't mean like, oh, she takes like a knife and, and does like one quick swipe. I mean, she has like a piano wire <laughs> And is just going back and forth over and over. It's so long. It takes so long for her to do this. Forever. And the, the sound it makes and when it like starts picking up speed is, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and meanwhile, god. there's the droning and the crazy score is going off. And it's it's a horrific scene. And Peter, he's he like, it, how can you react to this? He There's a window in the attic and he throws himself out of it. It's the only way out that he can get, and it seems like he dies. It, he lands on the ground, and there's a, a pretty gross thud, and he's not moving. And you see sort of a light float down into him, and it's the same light that we had seen before that didn't necessarily seem like it was something important, maybe just like a lens flare, but it's been there a couple times. It was in Charlie's room when she's making the toy. Uh, it was there when Peter was at school, and it's here now. And it sort of floats down into his body, and Peter just gets up, and he sees Annie's corpse levitating, and it just floats over to the treehouse, and he he follows her in, and this this scene is just it, it gets so like it was already fucked up. Right. This, somehow it just keeps managing to escalate. Yeah, it, it, I couldn't actually believe it. I was like, oh, okay, let's just keep going then. Don't stop, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, he's, he knows that people are going to be like, all right, I'm waiting for that relief. It yep. does not come. No. He follows her body, and you see that um, the severed head of his sister is sitting atop a mannequin with a, with a crown on it, and... The headless corpses of his mother and grandmother are bowing, and there's a ton of naked coven members in there. And he notices a portrait of his grandmother with the title Queen Lee. And Joan, at this point, addresses him, Peter, as Charlie. Now, this is sort of where you realize it all sort of clicks into piece here. We realize that the Charles that was... Ellen's son killed himself because his mother was quote unquote trying to put people in him. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that it's just because he's crazy, but 
that was obviously the case. Yep. <laughs> she, Straight we up. find, yeah, we find out that this king of hell needs a male body. And so, or not necessarily needs, but prefers a male body. Right. And so she was trying to put the demon into her son so that she could get untold riches and knowledge of everything on earth. And he kills himself to avoid that. Now, Tony Collette's character at one point says that she did not let her grandmother around Peter as a baby, but sort of gave her Charlie when she was born as like a way to let her back into their life. And the grandmother really takes to Charlie and was the one who was the only one who was allowed to feed her um, and like really was a big part of it. And you realize that she was also putting the demon into charlie yes and that she had been this demon the entire time basically mm-hmm. the cult their role in it was that they sort of played things to make it so that charlie would die freeing uh paymon the the demon to take over peter the male host right. uh so they they've corrected their mistake in this way paymon now has the male host that he wants and he takes the crown and the cult members pledge their lives to him and the movie ends with the cult members all bowing to him and chanting hail paymon and that's that's literally just where it ends there's just a a king of hell on earth now (laughs) i would love love a sequel but i think it would take away from the first one but just like as a concept it's like so cool it's like yeah all right i'm in let's go like what's next and as it's the final the final shot, again, it looks like one of the miniature houses. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there's this sort of feeling of helplessness for the, for the family on their behalf, of voyeurism, of not being – of not knowing whether there was anything that they could have done. Because it really – throughout this entire thing, the cult has been behind it all. They – were everywhere there's a lot of beheading stuff that you know sort of uh, relates to what happened there's the nuts there's at one point joan shows up to peter's school and tries to cast him out they're really breaking down peter throughout this entire thing Mm -hmm. to lessen his defenses and make it so that paymon can go into him and it's like dominoes, honestly. The whole thing is manipulated by the cult. And even things that don't work, like at one point uh, we see it's the, the family's mail is there. And after the mail is already there, someone comes by and puts a pamphlet for the medium on. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that that would have gotten Annie to go and try and talk to Charlie. But when that didn't work, they had Joan actually approach her and talk to her about it. Yep. And – Ari Aster has literally said that Hereditary is a story about a long-lived possession ritual told from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb. And there's nothing that a lamb can do, and there's nothing that this family can do. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, It's just an unbelievable movie as a whole. It it really is. I I could not believe it was his first feature-length film. Yeah, that's the other thing, is that this is Ari Aster's first movie. He wrote and directed it, and it's his first one. His second movie, Midsummer, came out this year. Also great. But I saw I didn't like it as much, I will say. Look, I, I totally get it. This is the best horror movie ever made, so I'm on board. Hell yeah. Um, and and he, he did such an amazing job of 
creating this atmosphere in it that it feels like someone who's been at this for so long. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yeah. Um, and it's really a remarkable achievement of his. It's the sort of thing that really makes you hopeful for the future of horror because it, there was a bit of a dip where it was sort of just the the campy stuff for a while and then it became the torture porn was really sort of everywhere mm-hmm. um with saw and hostel and this it it's definitely still horror but it feels like a, an escalation of horror and an elevation of it yeah. that is a really positive move for the genre. I think that people are really taking the movie a lot, or the genre a lot more seriously because of movies like Hereditary. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I never would have thought I would say that this movie is just a good movie and have it be a horror movie. Yeah. I just thought horror movies, scary, not scary. I didn't realize good is also a category <laughs> they can fall into. It's very um, interesting. And it's really awesome that it's the sort of thing that it was sort of controversial in terms of reception where a lot of critics really loved this movie but the slow pace of it that is not it's not only found in this movie the witch uh, directed by robert eggers is has sort of a similar thing where it's also very slow and people sort of went into it expecting something else and when they didn't get it they they felt like they didn't like the movie movie because it wasn't what they expected but a lot but critics loved it because they were like oh this is uh, wonderful it's taking the genre seriously it's incredibly acted and that sort of discrepancy makes me curious about as much as i'm hopeful for the future of the genre are they going to keep making these movies that aren't necessarily connecting the same way with audiences yeah I mean, that, that's true. I'm actually really surprised the audience score is that low. Um, I am looking, though. See, the nice thing about horror, which apparently I'm just learning, is very low budget. So this movie had a budget of $10 million and made almost $80 million at the box office, which is crazy. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised about that discrepancy. Really. Yeah, it really is shocking. But uh, as long as they can keep things low budget, I guess that it's more likely that they're willing to take risks on it, which is something that uh, I'm happy about. Because giving directors and writers like Ari Aster and like Robert Eggers the chance to take these risks um, and work with A24 as a production company who's really put out a lot of great movies recently, Mm -hmm. they are creating sort of a new wave of horror. I don't know what to call that wave, but it it really feels like a watershed moment, Hereditary does. Yeah. I agree. Hereditary is the movie that got me to see... I saw Midsummer in theaters, and that was the first horror movie I've seen in theaters, and I never I never would have even considered it without seeing this movie first. So definitely turn me on to horror. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, so to that point, Dan, we, we've talked about the plot. We've already said a lot, of, uh, a lot about what makes this movie good. But sort of sum it up for me, Dan. Why is this the best horror movie ever made? Okay. I would say it's the best horror movie ever made because it almost fucking murdered me in terms of horror. <laughs> so scary right off the bat. But on the second rewatch, being able to like not be murdered by the scariness of it and actually see the movie unfold, see the thought behind the, the writing, see the thought 
behind the directing and this conversation was also super helpful. It, it just it, it seems like an actually an amazing movie with an amazing plot, incredible performance, and still scared the living shit out of me. So I would say best horror movie, one of my favorite movies of all time as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's the best horror movie of all time because there is just such craftsmanship in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's Ari Aster is working so hard at putting together a great story and directing it well, and the actors are really giving it their all because there's been a lot of times where they get big-name actors and they sort of phone it in for a movie like this where mm-hmm. they're like, oh, it's just a paycheck. It's a horror movie. Who's really going to see it? That's not the case for this. They're all really giving it their all, and it's it's noticeable. It's, it's really awesome. And the level of detail that went into it, these little things that you pick up on a second watch that you don't necessarily get the first time through mm-hmm. and – being able to make more connections the second time through because you know kind of the way it goes is really spectacular. And it's not something that you get from a lot of horror movies. And for that reason, this has to be the best horror movie ever made. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Dan, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was great chatting with you. Uh, I hope you continue to watch more horror movies. For sure. (laughs) Um, People, fans of the show, can find us on Twitter at Best Little Horror PHL, and you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. Dan, do you have anything that you want to plug? Yeah, I would like to uh, plug Tuckins. It's an inside-out s'more on a stick, with each one taking a handmade graham cracker covered in chocolate, all tucked in a handmade marshmallow. You can roast it up over a gas or electric stove or a campfire. Check us out at tuckdashins.com. Let me tell you that these things are great. Uh, I'm I'm not sponsored by, by Tuckins, <laughs> but I have had them before, and they're they're really they're really awesome. And it's nice to be able to have, especially right now when we're recording this, it's sort of near the end of summer, and it's really awesome to be able to have that sort of like iconic summer food of a s'more without having to be um, messy. And in, in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of this movie because it's like the adult version of, of the thing that is typically considered for kids. Yep. So. Well put. Well put. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, that's great. Yeah. So definitely check out Tuckins and thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.